0: To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoy this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Can the church be churchless? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I am a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. Today's episode is the last in a series about the true nature of church according to the Bible. In this series, I've been testing the typical view of church or congregation or assembly or what have you against what the scriptures say and showing how what most of us participate in today, even messianic synagogues, bears little resemblance to the quote-unquote Church of Scripture. In this series, I established several important characteristics of the true biblical church. One, how the biblical concept of church is better understood by the literal translation of the called forth. Two, that the called forth is never a physical structure, a place to go, or a thing to do, but is always only the people. Three, that we as the called forth are one organism made of many members and that God has placed and gifted each one of us not to fit passively within a self-oriented institutional form, but for the active face-to-face building up of one another for the common good. Four, that the biblical called forth existed in communities of various size and gathered primarily in homes. Five, that meeting together wasn't aimed at weekly worship services, but they gathered organically, repeatedly, daily, and as often as they could. And six, that our ultimate purpose as the called forth isn't for having meetings or improving our personal walk with God, or even for building a community, but to become a living monument to the world, to collectively be a unified testimony to Yeshua so that those who don't yet know him may receive his eternal salvation. So that's a really brief rundown of what I covered in the previous episodes. So if you haven't seen them yet, I've linked to them in the description. I highly encourage you to watch them, since they establish the foundation for everything I'm about to share with you today. Because in this episode, I want to try to help you reimagine biblical church, or more accurately, to consider the patterns for the called forth that we found in Scripture and then to see how we might emulate and implement those patterns so that we can have a more biblically correct, more effective way of fulfilling our function together as Yeshua's body. So today I want to sketch out a picture for you based on the scriptures of what our called forth communities maybe should look like. And this picture begins with a scene from a called forth gathering that's based on a pattern we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were continuing steadfastly in the teaching of the emissaries, which we now also have in the scriptures, and in the sharing or the fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, which it says in verse 46 was house to house, and in the prayers. So while I'm not suggesting this verse be taken as a commanded formula for gatherings, I do believe it lends itself quite nicely as a basic framework that we can then build on and build out, seeing the elements as part of the foundation. So in this scene, I'll be roughing out what a called forth gathering inspired by this verse might look like. So if you will, picture this. On any given Sunday or Saturday morning, you might be headed to church, where regardless of denomination, you would be expecting something that basically boils down to an hour or two Of praise and worship, prayer, and a teacher teaching the Word. You would walk into the building, maybe drop off your kids with the youth or children's ministry, then head to the main auditorium where you would find a seat, maybe chat a bit with acquaintances you hadn't seen since last week, then wait for the service to begin. But maybe this isn't Sunday or Saturday morning. Maybe it's Sunday afternoon or Friday night or Thursday night or whenever and you're headed to Aaron and Becky's house. As you arrive, you see there are already a few other cars parked in the driveway and on the street. As you get out of the car, you grab the casserole you had prepared earlier, or maybe it's something from a store or restaurant you picked up on the way over. And when you get to the front door, you and your family just walk on in because they're expecting you. As you go inside, you're greeted by children who are excited to see you and yours, and they run off together to join a game already in progress. You and your spouse make your way to the kitchen, where you find six or seven other adults already congregating, and you set your dish on the counter along with the others already there. You greet one another with handshakes, hugs, and holy kisses, just like Paul says in Romans 16 and elsewhere. By the time everyone arrives, the house is bustling, There are about 20 of you there, about 10 or 14 adults, mostly married couples, some singles. And it's time to eat. It's time to break bread. It's buffet style, and everyone fills their plate, selecting from the eclectic offerings, making sure there's enough left for everyone. Each person is sure to tear a piece of bread from the loaf that Carol brought, and they pour themselves a cup of grape juice. Or perhaps it's wine, or maybe it's something else entirely. Everyone else is seated. And David, who is one of the overseeing elders of the community and is a regular member of your particular home gathering, along with his wife Elizabeth and their children, he asks if anyone would like to offer a prayer of blessing before the meal. One of the teenagers volunteers, and as she concludes her prayer, everyone grabs and raises their hunk of bread and their cup as she goes seamlessly into a recitation of 1 Corinthians ten, sixteen, and 17, which everyone joins in unison. The cup of the blessings that we bless, is it not the sharing of the blood of the Messiah? And the bread that we break, is it not the sharing of the body of the Messiah? Because there is one bread, we the many are one body, for we all share of the one bread then it's amen and everyone starts to eat. This is the master's meal or the Lord's Supper that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. I taught all about this and communion in the last episode. And you recited this passage of scripture together to remind yourselves that this is more than just an ordinary communal meal. It's a meal that symbolizes or represents your joint membership in the body of Messiah. It's a reminder that the meal is about you and the relationship you have with all those at the table through the sharing of the Messiah. Shortly after you all begin eating, Franklin, one of the group members, says he has a scripture to share. George, who is seated next to him, had helped him pick up lumber and supplies for a job they're doing together, renovating a room in Franklin's house. George is pretty handy and is always eager to lend a hand. And because of an unexpected and somewhat tense interaction they had with an employee at the store, it reminded them of this passage of Scripture that helped them to walk in the Spirit through the situation. Franklin, who's just a normal guy, then reads the Scripture and explains to everyone what it means and how it applied to his and George's encounter earlier in the week. Then George chimes in, saying how it built his faith to see that Scripture in action and how encouraging it was for him to see Franklin literally doing with that employee what the scriptures said. As George says this, you find that this encourages you as well, as you had been feeling a bit uncertain lately whether anyone could really publicly walk out their faith these days. You're glad they shared this with the group. Everyone is still eating, and while Franklin and George had been sharing, Helen looked as if she had something to add. Becky, who often does her weekly Costco shopping together with Helen, ever since Helen and her family moved into the house next door to be in closer proximity to members of the community, Becky notices Helen and encourages her to share. To which Helen replies that Franklin's scripture reminded her of a song and she was feeling an urging to sing it. Now, while there isn't usually singing like this at the table, when it does happen, it's often a blessing. And as she starts, you realize that the words of her song are actually the words of a psalm, and they're speaking directly to you. Everyone is encouraged by Helen's song, which is followed by words of thanks and spontaneous conversation and interaction throughout the meal. At one point, you stop to just look around with appreciation at this extended family of yours and marvel at how what's taking place resembles what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, and Ephesians five, eighteen, and 19. What is it then, brothers, whenever you come together, each has a melody, has a teaching, has a revelation, has an unknown language, has an interpretation. Let all things be for building up. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is reckless living, but be filled in the Spirit speaking to each other in melodies and praises and spiritual songs. At some point toward the end of the meal, maybe a couple of the teens have excused themselves to start playing some appropriate music in the adjacent room. Maybe it's one of the married couples, perhaps it's others. Maybe this time they have some musical instruments with them, or maybe they're just playing some MP3s through a sound system. And as dinner winds down and everyone's place is cleared, each person eventually joins in, positioning themselves in various places around the room, praising God together and blessing his name. While this occasionally goes on for a bit, and maybe sometimes it's only with voices, maybe there's no music or time of group praise at all, but this time it naturally concludes after a couple of songs, then moves seamlessly into a time of prayer. It doesn't always happen like this either, because sometimes you talk in advance about things you need to pray for together. But this time, Things seem a bit more weighty than usual. You're not sure what's going to happen, but you go with it because you trust each person there. Nearly everyone takes turns praying, unprompted, including some of the young children, because in an intergenerational community like yours, they're encouraged to be engaged and spiritually attentive. Some of the prayers are for known needs of those within the community, some more broad, like how you can all remain firm in the faith in times like these. Clearly, everyone is on the same page. It hadn't always been like that, but you all finally got there. Then Isaiah, who is the other overseeing elder of your small group, along with David, notices that the prayer time is wrapping up. And after he brings it to a conclusion, everyone finds a seat, on a couch or a chair or a beanbag somewhere, with the younger kids and one young mom on the floor in the middle, and everyone with Bibles or Bible apps in their hand. This is the part of the gathering when you would usually have some sort of scripture-related activity. You've been working your way through a book of the Bible together, or maybe Isaiah or David or anyone else from the group has been doing some teaching. Or maybe you've been discussing a video series, or maybe a small group resource like Kevin Jeffries being a disciple of Messiah or his discussion guide for his book Bearing the Standard of Scripture. But now Isaiah is looking at everyone, visibly concerned, saying that he and David feel it's important that you table what you had planned for today's gathering. This also happens from time to time. The plan is to always not be strictly beholden to the plan. Then Isaiah says that he's been thinking and praying a lot about the bi-monthly gathering that you all had a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was monthly or quarterly or whatever, that you had with the other 10 small groups that you're connected with in your growing local community. You met in a much larger facility for that. The other groups all gather together like you do, not necessarily on the same day, not necessarily with the same format, but you all share the same beliefs and bear the same standard of Scripture, and share the same value in small group-based communities. And at that large joint gathering, as usual, you had a time of extended corporate praise and worship, whatever that looks like in your world, and you appreciate it a lot more, now that it's not this extravagant weekly thing. Somehow the large gathering is more meaningful, now that it's not so often and so familiar. And also at that meeting were Jacob and Keith, who are part of the Ephesians 4 equipping ministry that support your community. Jacob is an insightful teacher of the word, who sometimes has a stern warning for you all, and Keith is very pastoral, but is mainly the one who kind of connects your whole community together, a lot like the Apostle Paul. Keith is the one who first started all this in your city, along with Jacob. Both Jacob and Keith make the circuit of all the groups in your community, visiting your home gathering from time to time. Keith especially works closely with David and Isaiah to support and equip them in their responsibility as elders of shepherding, teaching, and protecting the flock. Keith was also the one who laid hands on David and Isaiah, appointing them as overseers in the community. So while David and Isaiah care for you and your group, the other groups in your community also have overseeing elders. Some even have servers or deacons. And Jacob and Keith help to connect and support you all. So you have interconnected circles of care and support for one another, such that the edges of your community don't end at the threshold of Aaron and Becky's door. And that's especially true when there's a need that's bigger than your small group can handle. All the called forth is notified and comes together to pray and to help the smaller groups together, all forming one interconnected body. And not only that, but Keith and Jacob also help to equip a similar community that's in another city. They do this along with another group of equippers whose home base is there. So Isaiah begins explaining that it was Jacob's message at that bimonthly gathering that brought something into focus for him that had been concerning him for a while. And now he feels burdened to bring it up to you all. He and David have noticed a particular behavior or attitude that's been creeping into the body of Messiah in general. And Isaiah wanted to nip it in the bud before it got a hold of any of you. The issue that Isaiah raised has now turned into a discussion. There's a lot of back and forth trying to wrestle with the topic. It's not an easy one, and everyone is taking it seriously. While it wasn't Isaiah's intention to single anyone out, and nothing said has been aimed at anyone in particular, you notice things starting to get a little more intense. When Leo, one of the group members, begins to raise his voice, he's pushing back against what Isaiah is saying, that nobody here is under any worldly influence. Nobody's in sin. And there's nothing wrong with participating in this thing that Isaiah and David seem so concerned about. Things are getting a bit disorderly now, and David calls for calm. Then he says that there's a scripture that speaks to the issue they're discussing. He reads it aloud then teaches for a few minutes about its meaning and ramifications. But Leo isn't having it. In frustration, he finally blurts out that he's been doing this very thing, that he's been subtly trying to introduce it to members of the group, and that Isaiah and David and everyone who agrees with them are just being intolerant and judgmental. Not to mention, Leo says, we're ignoring this other scripture that appears to justify his thinking suddenly, and to your surprise, you hear yourself blurting out, but you're taking that scripture out of context. And you know this because you had just read that passage earlier in the day. Then you start reading from the beginning of the chapter, and when you finish, you look up and see that Leo is struggling within himself. The room has gone silent. Elizabeth, Had been leaning over, talking quietly to her husband. Then she turns and begins to address everyone with a word of knowledge, followed by a word of wisdom, like it says in 1 Corinthians 12. When she started speaking, Leo was completely stone faced. But by the time she was done, you could see his demeanor had changed, that something inside him was being broken. As Leo begins to sob, the entire room instantly tears up in empathy for their brother. And Leo, his voice muffled as he holds his face in his hands, he cries out saying, Oh God, I'm so sorry. (sighs) Leo then looks up at you all and says that he knew deep down what he was getting into was wrong, but just didn't want to admit it either to himself or to you. But because Elizabeth's word and revelation were spot on, along with the correction from the scripture that you brought, his spirit was instantly convicted and remove the blinders that kept him from seeing just how much he had been lying to himself and destroying his testimony as a follower of Messiah. And with that, the cloud of tension in the room immediately lifts. Whenever a confrontation like this is resolved, you're always relieved and elated. Hallelujah, you say to yourself. This is why we're here. It's just like it says in Hebrews ten, twenty-four and 25. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and to good actions, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together, as is the custom of certain people, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day coming near. And Paul also says concerning spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians twelve seven and fourteen twelve, and to each individual the manifestation of the Ruach, the Spirit, has been given for the common good. So it is also with you. Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek that you may abound in them for the building up of the called forth. And he also says about the powerful use of Scripture in Second Timothy three sixteen. Every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. The men and a couple of the teenage boys have now all risen up to come around Leo. They've started praying for him, and the women have also spontaneously Broken off into groups of two and three, praying for each other as well. Some of the people have begun privately confessing to the elders and one another that they had also started to dabble in this sinful thing as well. And this prompts Isaiah to recite aloud from memory a scripture about forgiveness, which he then follows with a prayer for everyone in the house. Things are winding down now. You can see the freedom and peace. On Leo's face, and the love that everyone has for him and for one another. You're grateful that Isaiah listened to the Spirit of God, that he brought up this difficult issue, and that he and David are watching out for you all. The meeting is now technically over, after two, two and a half, maybe three hours, and while a few people need to go, a lot of families stick around for quite some time. Despite the intensity earlier, it's been a reinvigorating gathering in Yeshua's presence. Being built up in the faith, you're more focused on God and your earlier uncertainty seems to be gone. You all continue to talk and share other things on your heart. Some of the kids are playing games again. Some of you are firming up plans to see each other before the next gathering. You overhear someone talking about an unbeliever from work who they're going to ask the elders about bringing to a future meeting it's getting late now. It's time to go. You never realized that the true nature of quote-unquote church could ever be like this. So what I've portrayed for you here is, again, just a rough sketch of what the called-forth community and gatherings might look like. I tried to capture the dynamics and the many different facets of how the called-forth can function together and the interconnectivity of relationships and interaction with one another at all the various levels. Now, obviously, you can't expect your currently non-existent small group-based community to suddenly spring to life and look exactly like I depicted. It's going to take believers with a huge commitment to the Word of God and no commitment to their own personal preferences and selfish needs. Yet a lot of the elements that I illustrated for you come from my own personal experience of when I've seen this kind of thing in action. So it can be done. What I'm trying to show you here, based on the patterns we have in Scripture, is the potential of what the call forth can truly be and how it can't be that just doing church as usual. Now, with regard to the gathering specifically, to bring it into focus just a little bit more, what we saw in the sketch is just one version of what that might look like. But while there's absolutely no need for every gathering to be exactly the same, nor should they, I do think we should seriously consider the pattern of Acts 2:42 as containing the elements that are fundamental to a productive gathering. And that pattern is centered around the sharing, not the least of which is the sharing of the Messiah in you with others. Take the sketch for example, We saw Aaron and Becky opening and sharing their home with the group. Everyone shared by bringing or contributing something to the meal. Franklin and George shared their testimony from the home improvement store. And in response, Helen shared her song. The teenagers shared their music. Isaiah and David shared their watchful concerns as leaders and carers of the flock. And Elizabeth shared her spiritual gifts, her words of knowledge and wisdom. That's what we mean by the sharing. Then, extending outward from this concept of the sharing, in a category all its own, we also saw the breaking of the bread. The mealtime can often account for a large portion of the gathering, not just because it's for eating a meal, but as we saw in the sketch, it can also be for each other's edification. As you shared the master's meal together, it was a picture of the spiritual sharing you all had with one another through your shared faith in Messiah. Table fellowship, as some call it, is possibly the most universal way of all to facilitate sharing. The third kind of sharing that we saw was the sharing of Scripture, represented in Acts 2.42 as the teaching of the emissaries. We saw the Scriptures first shared through a group recitation before the meal. Franklin was sparked to share a Scripture during the meal and Helen followed by sharing scripture in her song. David brought a scripture teaching during the heavy discussion you all were having, and you read from the scriptures to correct Leo's out-of-context understanding. As believers, sharing God's word together forms the foundation for all the other sharing. And finally, the fourth kind of Acts 2 sharing that we saw depicted in the sketch was in the prayers. You all prayed together before the meal. You prayed together after the meal, and especially after everyone poured themselves out to see Leo's huge, significant breakthrough. You all prayed for him and for one another. And all this face-to-face ministry of sharing is for a specific purpose, as the scriptures say, for the strengthening and building up of the called forth. And that's exactly what we saw happen. You were encouraged by Franklin and George's testimony. You heard God speaking directly to you through Helen's song, which also encouraged everyone else. Leo was built up through the breaking of his hardened heart and mind. And the whole gathering was edified as one body through your shared exchange of thoughts and scriptures and diligence to help Leo and the confessions and forgiveness that followed. As John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say we have sharing with him, with the Messiah, but walk in the darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have sharing with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from every sin. So sharing through the master's meal, the scriptures, the prayers, and also through the provoking and exhorting, the manifestation of the Spirit, and the building up for the common good, the sharing is supposed to be both the purpose and the fruit of the called-forth gathering. But that's not all, because in a properly functioning called-forth community, that sharing is also supposed to be extended far beyond the walls of Aaron and Becky's home. And it did. We learned that George shared his home improvement skills with Franklin. Becky and Helen, who purposely moved next door to each other, also shared their Costco trips together. People were making plans to share their time together outside the gathering. And the whole community, including the other ten communities that Jacob and Keith helped connect together, all helped to share the load when large needs arise within the called forth. This is Acts 2.44 sharing, where they had all things in common and divided up their possessions as anyone had need. So the biblical called forth isn't built on a building or worship services, a passive congregation, a professional clergy. It's a full participation, communal organism that exists only when we, as Yeshua's called forth, function and work selflessly together. So before I close, I just want to speak for a minute directly to church and congregational leaders. You may feel like all that I've described in this episode and outlined in this series is a threat to your ministry, that to pursue a community life like I've depicted here would make you and your position obsolete and maybe even endanger your livelihood. So to that, I would respond with this. Who do you serve and is that ministry really working? are you seeing the people in your congregation not transient and interchangeable but truly a steady part of each other's lives building each other up in the faith holding each other accountable and as a result of that are you really seeing as it says in acts 246 every day the master adding together those being saved if you are then i really want to meet you because both the statistics and the state of our culture say that you aren't. And if what you're doing isn't achieving those ends, then how can you stand before God and keep beating your head against the four walls that you're trapped in? Instead of trying to reinvent church or make it more relevant or trying to adapt someone else's church model because by some standards it's considered successful. Maybe it's time to just try the scriptures because I believe that the reason church as usual doesn't yield the kind of results we see in the book is because we got away from the ordinary in pursuit of the extraordinary. We replaced the natural with the man-made. We put our success in place of scripture, form and structure in place of people, the organization in place of the organic, the business in place of the body, and vocation in place of calling. We institutionalized the called forth and called it church. But if you've been truly called by God to serve, then there's still a place for you to minister in a churchless called forth. My exhortation to you today, then, is to seriously reconsider your view of the called forth in light of Scripture, to allow your preconceptions and traditions to be torn down, to seriously consider if not a dissolution of your congregation—not the people, but the organization—then at least consider a radical restructuring of it based on small home groups, and to ask God to reveal to you whether you've been truly operating in your gifting. Are you really a pastor? Are you really a teacher? Are you just an elder with an ego? Are you an unrealized apostle Are you really who your job says you are? Because I believe that in the called forth that the scriptures depict, free from the constraints of the box called church, we can finally find the fullness of God's calling. And only then will you be able to band together on equal footing with others who are also called to the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Because in the coming days ahead, in everything the body of Messiah is about to face, we're going to need you in that humble biblical position more than you can ever know. Your resources and provision aren't in money and buildings and worship services. It's in God's people who, along with you, share in the ministry of the body of Messiah one to another and to the world. Paul says in Philemon, verses 4 through 6, I give thanks to my God, always making mention of you in my prayers, because I am hearing of your love and faith that you have toward the Master Yeshua and toward all the kadoshim, the saints, the holy ones. And I pray that the sharing of your faith together may become active in the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us toward Messiah. My brother, my sister, as the called forth, we've been given in the scriptures a biblical pattern that reveals a body of Messiah that was organic, human, and flawed, yet active, expanding, and alive. Can you honestly say that the institutions and traditions that have been established in place of that biblical pattern, for all their accomplishments, have truly been improvement. Let's go back to the Word of God, working together to apply that pattern of the first believers, and then see what happens. Because the called forth was never meant to be based on form or structure, but on us, the people. It's time to no longer be all about the brick and mortar, but to fulfill our true calling and to go forth as Messiah's living Stones. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI through your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to rate, review, share, follow, or subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.